HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson. We are broadcasting today from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We're in the Culinary Village. It's our fifth year doing this. Can you believe it? I am joined once again by Hannah Forden and Eli Sussman, my esteemed HRN colleagues. Uh, Eli is on the social media, so you can follow our stories at Heritage underscore radio and at the Sussmans. Check it out. Um, so we just had a conversation with Johnny Caldwell and Tanika Reeves, also known as the Cocktail Bandits, and they mentioned our next guests a couple of times, uh, who are their good friends and our good friends. We're thrilled to have them back joining us. We have Matt and Ted Lee, aka the Lee Brothers. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to have you back in Charleston. We're it's happy great to, to be, be in your lounge here. Right, we're feeling very loungy today. It's we got a couch. Awesome. We got it's some chairs. Cozy. If only we had Math- last year. Matthew Rayford took full advantage of the couch by laying across it for the entirety of his interview and rested the microphone on his chest, which is by far the most relaxed anyone has ever been. Has ever been HRN. at HRN. <laughs> we got to bring it back. Feel free, stretch out, get comfortable. Um, <laughs> so, the first time that I met you guys it was at Fireflower and Fork, which is a couple years ago in Richmond. Oh yeah, and. At that point, your latest book, it's, it's still your latest book, right, Hotbox? Yes. yes. It yes. had not yet come out. Correct. But you kind of gave me some scoop on what the book was about. That's right. We, you were our first interview about that material. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah. We, we slipped up, and we, we divulged yeah. some material that Did you probably say the publisher you didn't want to us. Yeah, yeah, the Uh-oh. publisher was sort of like, yeah, that was Gamble. okay, but we'd prefer not. Oh, well, I feel like I just really did a great job. It is a true scoop. Yeah, you got the scoop. Awesome. So it has since come out. Correct. I read it very quickly. I devoured it. It was so fascinating. I think think a lot of people kind of compared it to Kitchen Confidential, but for catering. Um, What has been the response of of the book coming out since you guys have really kind of toured it and it's been out for a while now? Oh, gosh. You know, we're... um, we uh, have no read on like the reception except what we hear from people who we meet, you know? And I think the most gratifying ingredient of it is that the industry, the catering industry, which, you know, is, is a huge industry. It kind of lives a little bit in the shadows. That was kind of part of what the book contended with, but um, mostly they just feel seen. And, and we were, 
we're cringing a little bit on publication because we did tell a lot of secrets and a lot of truths about the industry that are, are sometimes uncomfortable. Um, about the labor, about the conditions backstage, behind the curtain, in the kitchen, whatever. We were a little bit worried that um, some people would feel, you know, exposed. But it's it's been kind of the opposite. It's that that um, simply telling anything about catering into, you know, a void of knowledge about how it works has been seen as a, b- a benefit, you know, to the industry, to the people who work in it, and. Um, even so much that um, some caterers are using the book and giving it to their clients to help explain why they charge so much, right. why they <laughs> and why, why they so charge so much, or why the conditions, why are, they may not be, you know, they may not be um, so accepting of, you know, the client saying, "Oh, I want you to do this," which is completely outside your comfort zone. You know, it's. I mean, there are a lot of takeaways from the book. I think that are sort of truths about the business of catering one of them being like if a caterer has a 20-year reputation there's a reason for it so let them do what they do well right and don't say like oh you know i want my entree to be a tribute to the trip i took to el bully in 1994 and no i don't even really do spanish food right yeah exactly (laughs) you know it's but there are clients who do that because there are caterers who have established themselves as the like the geniuses of customization. It's like, what story do you want to tell? We I can, can do tell it. that story in a seven course meal. You know, the in, sales in team's tent. trained to say yes to but any crazy you. request. But it will cost and, you. Yeah, that's and it why. costs you. And that, that's, I mean, catering is a luxury product. It's sort of like. And you, Eli, you've done catering, yeah? Yeah, lots. Oh, oh my gosh. And, and what I, I, what, I, the, what, I what I what you illuminated market. as well is all the levels and styles of catering that also uh, can almost mimic the levels and styles of restaurants. Like there are no two chefs that are alike and the catering companies, the skill sets that those people bring are unreal. To be able to make small bites for a thousand people takes a certain type of crazy, right? Yes. <laughs> and yeah, it, takes for a, sure. it takes an unreasonable skill set to be able to prep out 1,000 pounds of food in a way that Maybe someone on the line in a restaurant who's going to do 70 fine dining covers that night, maybe they can't do that, right? True. So I, mean, I, w- I wonder, like, what were some of the things that surprised you two the most as you were digging in and you heard these stories from these caterers that you guys being in the industry for so long, what blew your mind? Well, I think the first thing was when we first met um, our first catering chefs, uh, Juan and Jorge Soto and Patrick Phelan, was simply how um, compromise the conditions are in the kitchen. And not, I'm not talking about the prep kitchen. The prep kitchen's great. Um, but once you get on site and you actually have to finish the food and like bring it in for a landing, and you know, 1400 portions. Um, if it's, uh, like a high end event where it, there's an expectation of doneness on that, you know, beef filet or whatever, like you're just landing all these things simultaneously, uh, without the benefit of running water, you know, HVAC gas, you know, yeah. they're, they're cooking over Sterno. That was the, the first insight was like, oh my God, they're cooking over Sterno. But also like in New York City at the highest levels, you know, 3,000 a plate dinner, you know, uh, those hot boxes. Hillary Clinton's hot. out there like, real hot, you know, but they're cooking over alcohol, you know, jellied alcohol. <laughs> but that's also, a weird handicap to have yeah. <laughs> in the kitchen. Also, what sort of redounded to the characters of the kinds of people who excel in these environments is that um, 
the anonymity, like being accustomed to, you know, that restaurant culture, festival culture where, you know, we're excited because chef so-and-so is here, you know, and they've brought their team and they're, they've all got their jackets. And there's their a placard names with their, their name on it, you know, they're being like, celebrated and catering chefs never are seen or celebrated or anything. And they're good with that. Right. They, they, it doesn't make a difference to them whether someone comes back in the tent, the, the client comes back in the tent and says, great job guys. They don't, that's not what it's in it for them. They look at those thousand canapes and they're like stoked. And, you know, that takes a certain metal, you know, like There's a certain, also... um, you know, uh, toughness. Yeah, because you, you wrote a lot about you worked um, in like the prep kitchen yes. in New York for a while yeah. and it drove you crazy, which I thought was yeah. interesting. Yeah, because... But there's two different I kinds mean, of chefs, right? There's like prep kitchen and then there's, there's event. There's prep and fiesta. There's prep yeah. and fiesta yeah. and... and you know, for prep chefs, they really have to be good with, like, total dissociation between task and result, right? Like, you know, the production chef is telling you to peel 40 pounds of carrots. You don't know where those carrots are going. You don't know. There's no story. You know, there's nothing. You're just peeling the carrots, and that's what you're doing. And you're doing an awesome job of it. And I just, I, I just had a hard time. Ted needs closure. That's I, his I just, problem. Like, I, I want the narrative. It's like, wait, like, who's going to, is someone going to be, like, blanching these? Like, what's going to go? And, and they're like, no, 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 that's not your problem. Like, that's someone else's problem. It's like, I want to know what the, the fate of these carrots like, are. No, I know, but it, that As was As a like, home cook, you have this privilege, which is that you shopped, you chopped, and, you know, you fed it to your family, and you get their gratification or, or you not. Know, disrespect or whatever but like at least you have closure and um and like, that in itself is a nice circuit to make and but what if you only got one you know what if you're, you're only shopping what if you're only chopping you know it made me realize how being a home cook is is like such an extreme privilege on every level um and uh yeah <laughs> and then the other thing that i really enjoyed about the book was that you, you were really, like, undercover. You guys were working these events, not really as, like, the Lee brothers, but as just part of the crew. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes people were like, hey, I know you guys. Do you have secret well, names? Like, No, no. no. I mean, I, the, the cool thing, uh, we, we, when we went into it, it was, like, cloak and dagger. Like, should we, you know, <laughs> wear contact lenses or something? And it was... They don't give a damn because in catering, it's so mercenary, like especially Fiesta. But even in the prep kitchen, most people are not full, t full employees. And so people fade in and out of a certain firm by day of week, by, you know, season of their life, whatever. Like there's no permanence in it. And so it was totally natural that two unfamiliar faces would show up. Show up. You know, and and they, there's not a lot of rapture for the like, you know magazine media driven you know restaurant like thank god another body like get yeah. over here no, and start it peeling really is. Off. it's like we were like, like warm bodies yeah. and the only thing that, that counted was could we use right. a knife you know right and and, and it, for the most part it was even beyond but. that it was like are you high or drunk do you have two hands all right get on the bus we're going to the hamptons you know it, it was it was literally like that on some level um, because there's so much demand for labor. You mentioned the Hamptons. Can you actually talk about like a little bit the world of high end catering? Which well, that was not everyone gets privy to that thing. But like it is, people spend what half a million dollars on easily, food at a party easily, more a party okay. for 120 adults. 
Like that's the crazy thing. And the first, one of the first parties I worked was a quote unquote cookout on, at a private home on the front beach in East Hampton. And there were so many things I learned, among which was uh, on, the, on the bus ride going out, I was like, whose house are we going to? Do you know who, who's the host? And the executive chef was like, I don't know. That's not, that's not important. What's important is the client who's the party planner, right? That's the, that's the job. That's who gives you the job. The host doesn't matter. But I was like, I'm going to reverse Google this. Like we have the, addre- the home address. And it was like, it was the head of a huge media corporation. That man had made $50 million that year or the previous year, $54 million. So like for him to spend a million dollars on a cookout, that's probably a business expense anyway. A cookout where no Oprah was going to be there and Martha Stewart and Nancy Pelosi and like, you know, I mean, you mean yeah, that's I mean, money the well talent, spent. The, the, the talent for these 120 adults and 40 children was Diana Ross. So that gives you a sense of like, you know, that's who was performing. Not our normal there was, Sundays. There was a the Gucci five fireworks hang out. show. There was a Cake Boss cake. There was, there was a, a whole sculpture. team doing sand sculpture on there the beach. There was a team of security. There's a team of babysitters. There's a team, you know, there's the green room. That's a whole separate menu is the green room for, you know, Diana Ross and her people. You know, it's... it's, it's security it's, has its own menu. It's, you know, there was, a, there was an event director at the Met, the Met Museum, who said... You know, she would have, you know, basically an event every day. But for the major events, she would say, I was basically building a house in three days with a budget of, you know, 800. Whatever a house costs. 800,000 million dollars and then tearing it down in 24 hours. Um, And that's the kind of thing. I mean, at that upper level, it's really excessive. It's not that dissimilar from a food festival, right? Like when you think about the True. kind of like True. this is a much larger but, scale. But it, who is it for? But, you know, yeah. the difference is like yeah, yeah. the scale it, of guests here at the festival is much greater, and so you could argue that the impact in educational value and um, is broader. Right. Right. It's benefiting you know, thousands I mean, of people. For 120 adults yeah. and 40 kids, it's like you know, it's pretty. It's pretty insular. So we did a lot of different chapters because we were truly fascinated more from like a sociological and historical angle on this. How did we get to this place where you're doing these ridiculous extravagances? And so we um, did a deep dive on the history of catering, which uh, at least this modern era begins back in the late 60s, early 70s, we discovered. Um, with some f- a few enterprising, very creative individuals, mostly in New York City, who just um, uh, sort of um, freed events from the stranglehold that um, banquet halls had on them, like hotel banquet halls and, and club banquet halls in New York City. Private and, clubs. And, you know, yeah, church parish halls and stuff. Like, that's where you had a wedding. And suddenly, these guys were like, and they were mostly guys were like no let's do this in the temple of dendur it's fabulous like you got to see this you know the lighting is incredible and um if only we can figure out the food aspect of it because there are no kitchens in in museums for the most part and uh and they they hacked the hot box they loaded it with sterno and, and the rest by is hot history. box he means transport cabinet yeah it was a, a transport cabinet just for moving food around on sheet pans and they figured out that they could certainly move the food to the venue in that cabinet, but then they can empty it and turn it into an oven, a really pretty commendable oven. Warming oven, not a roasting oven. 
Right. But so we have a whole chapter on allergies and how that's transformed catering. Uh, there's a whole chapter on food design because that's a fascinating aspect of like, you know, if the, you've got the constraints you've got, what can you do? And, and how do you move the ball forward every year? If it's an annual gala, for example, it can't, you can't serve the same food, right? As last it year. Always and you have to, to make it more fabulous than last year. better. So. Um, um, and there are, there are caterers who specialize in that, where every piece of food is an interaction. You know, it's like an aha moment. It's, you know, it's the kind of food designed for Instagram. Um, the one chapter we didn't do that we should have done is uh, the waste chapter. Because yeah. mm. as I'm sure if you're listening and thinking about these giant productions, like there's a well, ton of waste that goes on. And, and, you know, whether you can abide that as a chef, like as a you know, professional, like kind of have to, if you don't want to like, you know, self-destruct. <laughs> Another aspect that I'm curious about in terms of just changing over time, over the decades is people internally, how they viewed working for a catering company. And now if it's changed from the perspective of it being a cool job or an acceptable job. Um, from my perspective, I see people that get into catering now because it provides you a certain lifestyle that maybe a restaurant can't provide. The money's actually can be quite good, right? So yeah. did you talk to anyone that maybe had a deep restaurant pedigree and, and bailed on that lifestyle to get into catering? Yeah, there were a lot of... Um, we drilled down on precisely those people who had made the jump from catering to restaurants or vice versa. And we talked to Danny Meyer. You know, he's someone who sort of symbolizes, you know, what restaurant culture can be at its ideal and has written about it. And yet he got into catering and for a time got his ass handed to him. Um, yeah. And he spoke very poignantly and sort of depressingly about um, the, the learning curve. Well, but but just how like oh. catering will never be what it is in restaurant world where you build your house and your culture there and you have that luxury of like digging in and, and presenting yourself to the world in this like settled way and you know who your employees are. He said, you know, you show up on site at a catering event at 4 p.m. and no one knows where they are. And no one knows who the other employees are. And so there's always this, these Hollowness, he described? He said it was hollow. <laughs> you asked about the restaurant catering um, move, and we did encounter a lot of chefs who uh, left restaurants to get a more normal schedule. Because there's not really anything normal about doing galas for 1,400 people, but there is... Like in the prep it's, kitchen, it's, in the prep kitchen is more, a, a, you know, a schedule. You can be an executive chef and make more money because there's no glory in it. There's no fame, but, you know, and have a bit more of a, um, a regimen, you know, there's, there's not that sort of, uh, craziness of, of, of a restaurant, but I, you know, there's still a long ways to go. I, I talked to the director of a cook, a big cooking school in New York and said, you know, how are you, they had a brand new facility that I was touring. I was like, are you encouraging people to work in catering and, and viewing that as an option? And he was like, oh, no, I wouldn't ever consider it. I would never consider it. You don't understand. Like, our graduates are going to Union Square Cafe. They're going to Per Se. They're going to out to the French Laundry. And, I, you know, it was interesting to me to just hear the director of a cooking school, you know, discouraging 
still has a negative connotation as a career path. Hugely negative connotation as a career path when it's actually really there's a lot of um, uh, excitement and glory and thrill and if you're the kind of person who can hack it, you know. It also makes me think of on the same way with catering that it would be also interesting to see if like school like school cafeteria jobs or you know working at like retirement facilities like cook because the those are places where it's not considered like chefing, right? right. And it's those more, are places where we need to. It's considered good food. industrial, but we still need to have people in those places that are great. And it was interesting because at at the this event last year, I met a woman who um, was a pastry chef for restaurants all around downtown, and now she's out at um, Bishop Gadsden, which is a nursing home around here. And I was like, "How is that?" And she's like, "It's awesome. I love it. I love my customers. You know, I love. It's just it's a different style for sure, but." It may be a better balance for their life, too. Work-life balance for them. Um, There are these unacknowledged class distinctions in food that no one wants to talk about. And we certainly encountered one in catering. But you're right. They exist, you know, throughout the kitchen space. And it's like, why why is cooking in one situation less worthy than another? Because we're not always eating in restaurants. Um, You know, I guess we hold this ideal of that of the chef as this um, Zeus-like, you know, uh, inventor of, like, high design and stuff. And if if the setting, like a nursing home, doesn't meet that, you know, if they're having to sacrifice their high design to volume or, um, you know, chewability or something, then that, like, eliminates that person from contention for a James Beard Award, like, you know, we have to examine why that is and, and, you know, who's driving that in this era. I'm curious to hear your insight also on, like, the way that guests interact with catering staff, like, whether it's cooks or servers. Like, so both of my parents were caterers in the 90s in New York and did, like, very high-end. Oh, my God, we should have interviewed you. Oh, God. But it's so interesting because, like, some of my mom's best stories are, like, she would do private parties, like, for the Whitney's um, and going unacknowledged, but then all of a sudden, like, Bill Murray would be in the kitchen and like only want to talk to them while they're prepping yeah. for dinner. You know what I mean? But so like, well, that's specific I, to Bill Murray. But that's probably exactly, exactly. But it's like you know, in restaurants, I think like people, most people who have any sort of manners, are, have a rapport with the staff. In catering, it's like you're you don't exist. Yeah, and that was you know, and that was for the few times that we were guest facing because we would never be guest facing as a kitchen uh, assistant unless there was like a, uh, at that cookout, there would be stations and things like that. Um, but yeah, you don't get seen like, um, and one of my first panics at that, um, East Hampton beach party was that, um, Martha Stewart was there and we were her wine columnist for five years. And I was like, Oh damn, like this is, I'm here. He is slinging hot dogs. I'm going to be busted. Here I am like faking, um, flipping burgers because there was sort of like a, uh, smoke and mirrors elements to it. Um, because every burger was coming out of a hot box. Um, but uh, you don't, you're not seen. And it was, it was a little bit... Um, she didn't see you. She didn't see me. Did she take you aside and say, no. do you need some gigs? Do you, <laughs> Is everything you okay? Can, you can write for me again if you no, want. She didn't see me. But, no, he was invisible because he was shoulder to shoulder with other kitchen drones. So mm-hmm. he and, did not exist. You know? And there was this weird thing where it kind of like bugged me at first. But then I was like, no, this is the authority of the uniform. It's like... I'm being treated as a, as a professional. Yeah. I'm, that's you can walk role. into any Fort Knox in New York City yeah, dressed as, as a 
caterer yeah. and not have to show credentials. for the event. Because, it, yeah, you're obviously there for the event. Specifically as a KA with the little beanie yeah. and... The, uh, you know, ill-fitting polyester chef's jacket, um, you know, really um, smeared um, black generic shoes. Well, you know, Not clogs, necessarily, although this would reinforce <laughs> the idea, but just, like, you know, sensible shoes and then, like, you know, stained black pants. Now that you have gone kind of undercover in this facet of the food industry... Are you interested in kind of taking this framework and applying it to any other aspects of the culinary universe? Or do you maybe want to expand still on catering and, and, and that? What's the next well, maybe so, book or plan? Uh, on the immediate horizon, we've partnered with um, a production company to begin processing and trying to develop something of a uh, documentary series that could be shopped around at some point. Um, just because we want it to go out to a wider audience. You know, books are great, but, you know, a lot of people to, are using that to go screen to a, thing. a wider audience and also have the, um, the characters who live this life have them tell their stories, you know? So it's not just me and Matt filtering their stories. It's like it, actually... And showing it, it's, it's more you know, primary in front of the yeah. camera. So that's one thing. And, uh, and what else are we working on? Um, <laughs> But yeah, so the method, it took us six years to write the book because we didn't, even though we'd written for magazines and newspapers and had published cookbooks, like those are short bites, short takes for the most part. And so writing long form stuff and trying to braid together his experience, my experience as brothers, but on different scenes and different settings was complicated. And it took us like an extra three or four years just to figure out how to write. <laughs> And with the help of some great editors, and we even brought in some freelancer friends to help advise us, um, we, I think we kind of cracked it. Hopefully it was readable, right? It was, it was such but a page-turner, yeah. But we, we've never done that kind of long-form writing before, so it definitely felt new to us. But, and, um, but to answer your question, I think we are going to bring that framework to another part of the food industry, but we just haven't figured out where. We, like, a couple School but. cafeterias, maybe. Yeah, school yeah. cafeterias. Um, yeah, uh, cruise ships. Cruise ships. <laughs> well, don't, not right now. Yeah. <laughs> not right now. Let's wait till. Yeah. We don't. We won't get quarantined on. Uh, one top caterer in New York, um, uh, Neil Gallagher, came from Restaurant World. We were interested in him because he came. From, he's one of those few who came from Restaurant World, went to catering, and killed in catering, and innovated, and brought to it some. Um, just one thing was uh, containerizing the side dish per plate in a, a disposable foil cup. And so the the baby fingerlings or whatever would all be containerized back in the prep kitchen. And so, so on site, you could bring in a waiter and just dump that cup on the plate and it was consistent in volume. Because previously they had just delivered um, you know, serving spoons mm -hmm. and people would be serving out of a vat out of, or something. Yeah. And so it'd be irregular. And he brought that kind of like scientific consistency anyhow um and a lot of waste aluminum waste but but the point is he went on from there to be the like culinary director he's of, now the culinary director um, royal of caribbean royal caribbean yeah. living down in florida and managing like 16 restaurants around the world wow. you know because they float no so you can be in catering and have yes amazing and massive success yes. on kind of a grand scale yeah. totally and bringing it back to the food festival you actually see there's all these dinners and events going on at night these plates um, ticketed events where chefs are actually very much out of their comfort, comfort zone, zone and being sure. thrown Absolutely. up against the world of catering. Like we went to a dinner the other night where 
three chefs who obviously have their own restaurants and their own staff were in a tent, pouring rain. They meet the servers and their sous chefs 11 minutes before the dinner starts. (laughs) And then you have to trust people to plate out your food, right? But a caterer is used to that. Yeah. Because you were talking about mercenaries. Right. They're expecting new bodies to come in all the time. But it was really fascinating to hear the chefs after the dinner we were speaking with them. They are not comfortable with that type of environment. They are super not down. It is the exact opposite of what an intuitive restaurant experience is like. Exactly. Um, And so... It's so cool, the new era with festivals, with pop-ups and everything. Um, Restaurant chefs and young chefs coming up in the business are being pushed more into that sort of, you know, liminal space where you kind of have to make food happen wherever you find yourself to be. And it might be an unfamiliar city. It might be out in the clover. It might be, um, you know, you never know. (laughs) And, And being improvisational in that way, logistically, like, oh, we don't have... Uh, the sterno shipment didn't come in. Well, is there some firewood? Can we turn these benches into firewood? You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, is this alcohol, you know, burnable? Like, you know, you just start improvising. And, you and have you, no choice. You learn that you definitely want to roll with a crew that who's used to that and comfortable with that and wants, you know, sort of loves the challenge of that, of making making the best out of what the circumstances are right now. You know? Yeah. Well, we have to wrap up, but I do want to mention that there is a, a pop-up bookstore here at Charleston Wine and Food. So anyone who wants to go grab Hotbox, I believe I saw it over there. Right on. Yeah. Blue Bicycles yeah. rocking the rocking the bookstore. And in obviously find it at independent booksellers, Amazon if you must, but. Uh, you know, everywhere. Everywhere. All right. Thanks, man. Uh, paperback Thank coming out. Thank you all so April. much. Oh. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Another scoop. Yes. That's what I do. That is a scoop. Totally. I get the scoop that out of the Lee Brothers. Break it all what I the leave. Thank you all so Thank much. You Thank you so for having Heritage Radio Network. Um, we appreciate and it. And thanks to the Julia Child Foundation for supporting our coverage of Charleston Wine and Food. We'll be right back with Krista Cotton of El Guapo Bitters. This program is powered by Simplecast. 